Thank you all for uh, coming this morning. We got the opportunity to open God's Word. It's really exciting. If you have a Bible, a copy of God's Word to us, please open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As we begin to work into our passage this morning, I want to start by talking about the idea of fear. Is fear ever a good thing? That's right. That's where I was going. Thank you, brother. Um, fear is a good thing. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents told me not to stick things in power outlets. Well, this, this individual standing before you this morning had to learn that that was a bad idea through fear. And you don't necessarily get that from your parents because they love you. You get that through sticking the fork in the, in the outlet. And then you learn that that's, not bad, that's a really bad idea. And fear, the fear of that happening again, puts boundaries on your actions. So it is with the word of God. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Or the beginning of knowledge, depending on which translation. The fear of the Lord is necessary for wisdom. As we work through our lives, as we work through what we encounter and and live with and and do from day to day, the fear of the Lord guides us along that path. Jesus, when he was on this earth, spoke of of fear in a good way in two places. One is in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. And the second is in Matthew 10, 28. I want to read that, that second passage for us, but this is the only time, two times, and they're both the same message, that Jesus says that we as Christians, we as people who follow him, should fear. Matthew 10, 28 reads, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in the context, Jesus is talking about God, because it is God who will condemn us to hell or save us to everlasting freedom in heaven. It is God who cannot just end our life here, because he's God. It is God who also can affect our eternity. This fear of the Lord should be something that's present in our lives today. In our passage last week, we read, so whether we are home or away, 2 Corinthians 9 and 10, the last part of last week's passage. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Speaking of God, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that's where we stopped last week. A future judgment a desire to please God, and our actions being tried as believers. This is not whether or not we'll enter heaven, but whether or not our actions will be, bring reward or not. This must be clear. This is not whether or not we enter heaven, because that is determined by our salvation. But we as believers, when we get to heaven, we'll see Christ. And Christ, the passage is saying, will try our actions, whether or not they are good or evil. And then we launch into this week's passage when Paul writes, Therefore, because of all that he's just said, because of this future judgment, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Knowing the fear of the Lord. 
Paul is saying that that future day when our life will be tried, where actions will be tried by our our heavenly Savior, Jesus Christ, that day should not leave us without an emotional reaction. We should have fear of that day. And he uses that Old Testament title we learned from Proverbs just at the beginning here. And he says, the fear of the Lord. Paul is applying the fear of the Lord to Christ himself. We must fear our God. We must fear our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Fear motivates gospel witness. You see, it says the knowledge of the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. This fear that Paul has motivates him to persuade others. I want us to uh, listen to the words of Polycarp. That's a weird name, but it's weird because it's not English. It's Greek. Um, Polycarp lived in the second century, and I want to read what he wrote. Not because it's scripture, but because this is a man like us who is writing and reflecting upon his life and how we should act in this world. And I think it's helpful, too, because we see that he has read Paul's writings just like we have. Listen, therefore, if we ask the Lord to forgive us, Polycarp writes, then we ourselves ought to forgive, for we are in full view of the eyes of the Lord and God. And we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and each one must account for his own actions. So then, let us serve him with fear and all reverence, just as he himself has commanded, as did the apostle who preached the gospel to us, and the prophets who announced in advance the coming of our Lord. Polycarp gets it. Our actions are done in view of our God and Father, as Paul has been talking, rather, before uh, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our actions are done in the eyes of him. Each day, our actions are tried. This fear, the fear of the Lord, of this, this reality, motivates the Apostle Paul when he says, we persuade others. <clears throat> Paul's motivation is to fear the Lord. In our passage today, Paul seeks to explain what a faithful life looks like for a believer on this earth. So as we lay this foundation that the fear is a good thing and that fear should motivate us to good actions, Paul is specifically going to talk about one of those good actions, and that is the proclamation of the gospel, the persuasion of others. As we now turn and want to, I want to read us our text so we can lay the foundation for our discussion this morning in the Word of God. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, writes this, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. 
From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity, Lord, to respond to that future day of judgment with a heart of faithfulness because of the work that you've done in our hearts. Lord, thank you for Paul's example that he's laid forward, that he wants to persuade others because of that fear. As we step into our passage this morning, Lord, help us to understand just all the ramifications you might have for us. Lord, I want to praise you for your son and for the salvation we have, that all of our sin can be washed away by the blood of his cross. Lord, thank you for your uh, great love for us, for changing our hearts and helping us, Lord, we pray, help us. Help us to see our world through the right lenses. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this sermon this morning is called Seeing with New Eyes. This title reflects the effect of salvation Paul is talking about in our text this morning. New eyes come from God's work of forging a new creation in us. God's love forges a new creation in believers. That's our central argument this morning. And I think that Paul is making in this text is that God's love forges a new creation in believers. That... That idea is supported, I think, by three themes that run through the text. God's love commissions us, God's love controls us, and God's love changes us. This morning, we're not necessarily going to work through the text in a chronological fashion because Paul is weaving three themes through this passage. Paul is not a one-hit wonder. He doesn't have just one message. He's like us. He's complicated. Well... At least I'm complicated. Um, Paul is trying to get more across than just one single point. And so I want us to follow these themes through his words and understand what Paul is trying to communicate through that method. As we start each theme, I will talk about where that's found so we we can locate it in the text. And then we'll work through those passages. So taking together... These three themes, God's love commissions us, God's love controls us, and God's love changes us, explain God's desire for us while we remain on this earth. So our first is God's love commissions us. In our passage, Paul touches on the theme of commissioning in several places. In verse 11, he speaks of we persuade others. In verses 18 and 19, ministry of reconciliation. In verses 20 and 21, he speaks of being ambassadors for Christ. In verse 11, he speaks of the fear of the Lord. And we found that the fear of the Lord is the foundation for wisdom. 
out of Proverbs number uh, 1, verse 7, Paul seeks to please Christ because of the future judgment of all believers. And that we learned from last week's message in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 of 2 Corinthians. And this morning in verse 11, Paul reflects on this future reckoning of his life by speaking of the fear that it brings. Biblical fear is God fearing fear. The apostle Peter also speaks of fear and living well on this earth. And he's in first Peter one seventeen. he writes, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. For Peter, in the, his book of First Peter, the word of exile refers to our sojourning, our living here on a, in a world that's not our true home. Our true home is yet to come. Peter is saying that we should live in fear of our Heavenly Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conducting yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Like Peter, Paul is also arguing the same point. We must live a life that is in, has a fear of God. A component of our, our faith must be that we respect the fact that God is watching over our actions and that there is going to be a day when we are going to stand before Christ and have accountability. <clears throat> Living in the fear of the Lord, Paul acts. Specifically, he says, we persuade others in verse 11. Paul does this out of obedience to Christ's command to make disciples. The apostle Paul received his commission to preach the gospel on the road to Damascus. Headed to Damascus, which is north of Israel, to persecute believers there, he encounters the risen Savior, the risen Christ. A light shines out of heaven. He's brought to his knees, caused to be blind, and, and Christ asks him, why are, you, why are you fighting against my church? Led blind into Damascus, a, a believer comes to him and, and talks to him, and, and by his by God's command, brings uh, sight back to his eyes. And the text in Acts records that the Apostle Paul began to teach that Christ was the Messiah in the, almost immediately. But even more so than that, the Apostle Paul stands faithful to the commands of our Savior. In three places in the Bible, Jesus himself speaks a command to us to proclaim the good news and what he has taught throughout our world. One is in Luke 24, one is in Acts, I think, 1.8, and the one I want to read us this morning is Matthew 28. Jesus says, or Jesus came and said to them, Matthew reads, and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Paul is not a one-off wonder. His proclamation of the gospel is not something that he came up with or that's unique to him. The apostle Paul is following faithfully in the commands of Jesus Christ. Christ has commanded all of us to proclaim the gospel to the world, to go and make disciples, to teach all that Christ has commanded. Paul is walking faithfully on this earth, faithful to the commands of Christ. 
Jesus commanded his disciples to go into the world and make more disciples, not necessarily of themselves, but of Jesus. Specifically, Jesus commanded them to teach the new disciples everything that he had commanded them. Words like all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me, lay out a reason to respect what Jesus is saying. If all authority and power has been given to him, what he says next should have great weight. Jesus' authority means we have responsibility. Paul and Polycarp realized the urgency of the commission to share in the light of that future day. Paul, because of the fear of the Lord, says, we persuade others. Verses 18 and 21 continue, or through 21, continue this theme. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation in verse 18. Let me read for us the, uh, this passage really quick so we can regain our reference on it. It says, all this is from God, verse 18 of chapter 5, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. <clears throat> that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. In verses 18 and 19, Paul lays out the idea of reconciliation. Verse 18 states, Christ is the means of reconciliation. This is the gospel message, that Christ's death is the means of reconciliation. There is no name under heaven by which men can be reconciled to God but the name of Christ. That is Paul's message, and that should be our message as well. Paul is laying out the means of reconciliation, but it is also through Christ that God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. And we say, what? If Christ is reconciliation, how have we been given a ministry of reconciliation? This ministry of reconciliation is brought forth in both verses 18 and 19. So let's, let's read. It says, all this is from God. So God is about to do something. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself. This is the first action that Christ does in this verse. And it says in the text, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So it is through Christ that, minist- that reconciliation happens, and it is the ministry of reconciliation that God has given to us. F- verse 19 goes on to say that it is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. So through Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And so we might think through the gospel and how the gospel tells us that Jesus Christ came to die for our sins. And because his death on the cross as a perfect person, something that we will never be, our sins can be forgiven through faith in his name. His name meaning his reputation and his actions, all that he's done through putting our faith in Christ and what he did on the cross and in on this earth, we can have the forgiveness of our sins. So that's the first thing in the second verse that God has done. The second, again, we have this word and, and another thing, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So because of God, we both have the ministry of reconciliation and the message. The message is that Christ has died for our sins. And that is a ministry that we must be in the midst midst of doing. We must continue to do this ministry of proclaiming that message. You see, if this book is closed, no one will know what it contains. 
the hope that has come to our hearts cannot go forth unless we open this book and proclaim to the world what Christ has done. We are the messengers and the message is Christ. This is exactly what the gospel tells us of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, and he gave us the mission of sharing this message with others, as we've read previously. Paul is standing in that tradition when he makes these statements. Paul is not standing on a platform of weakness. Rather, he is standing on a platform made sure and strong by his faithfulness of carrying out the message of teaching all that Christ has commanded, including the proclamation of of the gospel. Paul also calls believers ambassadors for Christ in verses 20 and 21. Let's read that text. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He explains this title as uh, the title of ambassador, as those whom God makes his appeal through. Motivation for evangelism is not just out of a desire for obedience to Christ, but also out of a compassion for those not reconciled to God. Without people like Paul persuading men and women, knowledge of Christ's work will not change anyone. It will remain closed in the book that God has given The book in Isaiah and in the New Testament is said, it will never fade away. But we, the frail messengers who do come and go, unlike the message, must stand up and take that message to the world. It will remain hidden without us telling others. God's love for sinners stands behind those he has commissioned as ambassadors. Believers, this morning, we have been commissioned as ambassadors of Christ to bring this message of reconciliation. Paul is expounding in our passage that God's love has, through Christ, commissioned us to persuade men of the realities of what God has done in Christ. So God's love commissioned us, but God's love also controls us. This section, this theme, this idea weaves its way through verses 12 through 17. In verses 12, or rather, verse 12 sets out our need for new lenses. So we talked about those new eyes, seeing with new eyes. And verses 13 through 17 lay out a life that, that these new lenses reveal a reason to boast in. You see, we need new lenses as believers. We need to put on these new lenses as believers in order to see the work that God is doing. If we simply leave our lenses on the table, we will not see what God is doing in the world around us the way he wants us to see it. So let's jump into this text. Let's see where Paul is going. Um, In verse 12 of our text, the text reads, we are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. In our world today, we have many people who are ambassadors. We've already talked about this idea of being ambassadors for Christ. But in our own world, we have people through, we might call this advertising or marketing. Uh, People make a living of this. They're ambassadors of a product. 
Maybe uh, there's somebody who's an ambassador uh, for like Nike or for another brand. We see this on TV. We see advertisements. Or maybe it's a little closer to home. It's on our phones. It's on Instagram or Facebook. Friends or even people that we follow are repping products. And they're saying, this is a good product. This is something that is, is trustworthy. This is something that is good. They're, they're repping a product. They're an ambassador. They're pro- and a product ambassador, they might call them. These people are doing that because, by means of the appearance. They're showing the outward through outward sign. They might, it might be a, a vacation that one might want to take or a car that may want. They're showing the appearance of that as being good and being trustworthy. Now, listen, this is not a message this morning against advertisement or capitalism or commerce or anything. That's not the topic. The point is to, sh- to show us, share with us and help us focus on the fact that our world loves appearance. It loves building appearance, and from appearance comes authority, it says. And there are times when this is important. Um, when I was in the service, uh, we polished our shoes we ironed our uniforms back in the day when they used to iron uniforms um, because that presented a picture of authority. And that was very important, both for le- being a leader in the military and uh, for learning how to be diligent in one's tasks. Appearances can have a positive and good meaning, but Paul is not pointing to that. He's not saying, remember, Corinthians, when I was with you, my shoes were polished and my tie was tied correctly. Hopefully my tie is tied correctly this morning, but I will say my shoes are not polished. Um, that's, that's humor. Um, <laughs> thank you for laughing. Uh, I want to, this brings us to our point. I, I wanted to have this exercise so that we could say this is not what Paul's talking about. Paul is looking at the heart. He wants us to turn our eyes, to put on these new lenses, and to focus on what is in the heart. Now, we might look back at the Old Testament, and we might see the prophet Samuel. Prophet Samuel is commissioned to go anoint King David as the future king. He comes and his, uh, David's eldest brother comes in. He's strong. He's burly. And David's like, or Samuel is like, this is the guy. This guy looks like he can read, lead 10,000 men into battle. This looks like the king. This is it. And what does God say to him? He says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And so then the story unfolds and David is appointed king. And uh, God will go on to say of David that he was a man after my own heart. God is interested in the heart. Paul is making the argument that we need to be interested in the heart as well. But how do we see the heart? How does one see the heart? Having new eyes helps us to see the heart. Jesus explains in the, in the Gospels that out of the heart flows issues of life. Our hearts produce the actions that we carry out. We can look and see the actions that people do and we can see their heart. A loving heart produces loving actions. A heart desiring truth produces uh, truth, saying the truth and so forth. We can see the heart. We can see the true gospel alive in someone's heart through their actions and their, what they speak. We this morning need to follow Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians and not look on the outward appearance to build strength and, and stability in, in people's eyes, but look at what's going on in people's hearts to seek out that through conversation, through our observation. What lenses are we looking at our fellow believers with? What lenses are we looking as we make judgments? 
Having new eyes, we need them. Picking up our new glasses means looking towards the heart and not towards appearance. To speak of love is to speak of the heart. Paul draws a line between boasting of the heart and appearance. Love changes our heart. We need to change what we esteem. If God's love has invaded our lives to the point that it has changed our hearts, can we not then look out on our world and esteem that same change in the lives of our believers, brothers and sisters around us? Paul moves on from there to verses 13 through 17. He says, um, in in verse 13, he says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So what does he mean by this? Basically, Paul is saying that if I am uh, beside ourselves, or one might say even out of my mind, it is for God. I am willing, he says, to even be out of my mind or beside myself for God. That's his willingness to be faithful before God. He, he said, earlier in verse 11, he says, God knows what I am. God knows who we are. God sees. But then he says, if we are in our right mind, it is for you. We may choose to serve the Lord, even to the point of being considered out of our mind by the world. But when we go to make a logical, to make an appeal to others, we need to speak with, with logic and reasoning so that our message is clear. Simply loving the Lord does not mean that we can throw out the ability to communicate clearly to others. And this is what Paul is talking about. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. Paul is saying what I'm about to say is not craziness, but is me in my right mind speaking logic to you. So please listen. It's going to support that idea with verse 14, which reads, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that, is, or that those who, living, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. <clears throat> for the love of Christ controls us. That's found in verse 14. Paul's ministry of love is controlled by Christ. This control functions by means of considering Christ's death. This selfless act teaches us to be selfless, to not live for ourselves. For the love of Christ controls us. Doesn't that sound like a beautiful opportunity that the love of Christ could control us? Um, I know that sometimes I feel like I am far from that standard. But Paul is not just simply stating a standard or an ideal or something that's joyous and we should long for. Paul is stating something more than that. He wants to give us the reason or the method, the means to accomplish, to get to that love of Christ controlling us. How do we love so much by our heavenly father and by Christ have their love to control us? Well, let's look at the text. For the love of Christ control us. And then in the ESV, it says, but we have concluded this. And what Paul is signaling through these words is that if we have concluded this, we have considered, we have considered this. And what has he considered? He goes on to tell us of the gospel. He goes on to tell us of what Christ has done, what God has done through Christ. It is through meditating on what Christ has done that the love of Christ comes to control us. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. We have considered this. We have looked at this. That one has died for all. Christ has died for all. 
Brothers and sisters, if we want the love of Christ to control us, we must consider well the gospel, the story of Christ giving himself for us. But it also teaches us of redemption. <clears throat> More should be gained from Christ's life than simply being selfless. More should be gained from Christ's life than simply being selfless. We must not simply just be selfless people like Christ was. We must have a changed heart. Many people will pass through this life being selfless, but not pass into heaven. Brothers and sisters, people here this morning, we must have changed hearts and not just simply have outward actions. Paul is saying that the importance of the heart is what we must focus on. The implication of a new heart and the control of love is that the outward appearance becomes inconsequential. Paul reminds the Corinthian church about this implies we must also actively choose which to boast about. Union with Christ results in a person becoming a new creation. The creative God forges a new person. That we can find in uh, our passage this morning, verse 17. The love of God should impact us both in how it controls our lives and how it has made us a new creation. But lastly, I want us to focus on the idea of God's love changes us. And this, I think, is best explained for verses 20 and 21. Let me read those for us really quick. Therefore, we are an ambassador for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In verse 20, Paul states, be reconciled to God. Paul's first command in 2 Corinthians is to be reconciled to God. Paul chooses here to use an imperative command. This is the first time he does this in the book, and this gives great importance and weight to the fact that Paul is emphasizing and and saying to us, we must be reconciled to God. He's identified the church as, as this is being a church. He's identified them as saints in the opening verse of the book. But yet, even to this group of people, he is willing to say, be reconciled to God. Maybe that's because they need to confess their sin and be reconciled to him because they have erred in some way. Or maybe it's because even here this morning, we may not, one of us may not yet have come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Paul's urging us this morning, be reconciled to God. Let that reconciliation take place in your life so you can have a changed heart as well. We cannot but meditate on this truth that Christ became sin for us. This letter was addressed to a church, as we talked about. Yet Paul is not, a, not impressed by the external identity. Paul continues to persuade others, even within the church. We must ask ourselves if our assurance of faith rests on our appearance or an evidence of a changed heart. Paul wants authority to come not from appearance, but from the heart. Brothers and sisters, is our heart changed? We've seen that God's love forges a new creation, believers. We've seen that we must carry that message or the word of God will remain closed. We have seen that meditating on God's love for us and his son will bring that love to the point of controlling us. And finally, we've seen that God's love can change us. Let us pray. Let us pray that God will help us in these facts.
Lord, please help us as we try to apply this passage, as we seek to have new lenses and new eyes. Lord, we ask that you would help us um, as we work through our days. Lord, help us to see what we value and what we should value. Help us to be uh, easily commissioned, easily controlled. And Lord, please help us to have a changed heart. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we know that many people around this world labor on behalf of you and on behalf of us to bring this message to our lost, to the lost, those who do not know of the reconciling nature of Christ's work. Lord, we ask that you give them strength this morning. Lord, as we shift to communion, to the Lord's table, to what you've given us to remember your love, Lord, help our hearts to be quieted and to be able to meditate and consider just, just what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. The love of Christ controls us. As we turn to communion, we have the opportunity to, to do what our pastors asked us to do, and that is to med- meditate, to consider, to conclude the truth of what God has done in Christ. I want us to set our frame of reference for our passage this morning by reading verse 21, the last verse. And it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, as he passed the bread and the cup on that night, knew that this was his mission. John tells us earlier that he knew fully that he was God and that he knew fully what he was about to do. In part, one way that he would have known this is through the words of Isaiah chapter 53, where the prophet Isaiah writes, Surely he has borne our griefs. Read these verses. Let our hearts meditate on what Christ has done for us. Surely he has borne our griefs, speaking of the one that wants to come, and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was cursed, or rather crushed, for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And over in verse 11 it reads, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied, speaking of Christ. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. As we come to take the elements, these outward two sections, if you would uh, file out to the walls and come around and come up to these middle aisles, and the middle two sections, if you would come to the center aisle and follow down here and and Uh, take the cup and the bread, both elements at the same time, then come back to your seats through the center aisles. And if there's anyone that's mobility impaired around you, maybe you could ask them if you could help them by bringing them the elements. So let us come and and take the elements. Mark writes, recording that conversation in the upper room, he writes, And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took, or let us take the bread that God has 
And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood, the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let us drink, remembering Christ's death and his future coming. Let us pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you that before the time began, you had a plan ordained for our salvation. Lord, thank you for being willing to crush your son. Lord, thank you for being willing to send your perfect son to die on our behalf. Jesus, thank you for being willing to go to the cross, to live a perfect life, and to put all of that on the line, on the cross, and to die with the weight of our sin on your shoulders. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Lord, we want to acknowledge and praise you for it. Lord, as we go out into our week, I ask that you would give us strength to face all that we may have, that you would walk with each of us, that you would give us strength to remember your love. In Jesus' name, amen.